as we come to this story, repetition's good, isn't it? Um, it's the story of the first leader of Israel. Whether we're young and sitting in this morning because it's a family service or old, it's really important to know who we're following, isn't it? If we're following a leader, it's really important to know that that leader is wise, faithful, a person of integrity. So when I was driving to church this morning and there was a big white car coming the other way, turning into the driveway, I thought, oh, they're going first, that's good. And I followed them. I went down the wrong driveway, didn't I? Because they went down the wrong driveway. And the person behind me, who was also coming to church, also went down the wrong driveway. Make sure if you're following the leader that the leader knows where they're going. And then if you're following the person following the leader, that they... We need some discernment, don't we, when we follow the leader? Uh, the same as when you tell your children's talk person, hey, it'd be really good to do the reading as a, uh, a drama this morning with the kids and suggest that. It's probably really good for that leader to then explain that instead of the read- reading rather than as well as. Um, so I'll take the, uh, the blame for the double story uh, this morning. But it's good. The repetition's good, isn't it? And we're going to go through it again. Leadership. The king of Israel. I don't know about you, but for those of us who live on uh, this side of the hills, that is in the hills and not down on the plains, even on cold, wet winter days, it's a, it's a pretty nice lifestyle to be in the hills. And one thing we've noticed, particularly over the last couple of years with COVID, um, is that the cows and the sheep and the horses, they don't care at all about COVID. <laughs> Lockdown restrictions didn't bother them. Haven't heard any of them coughing or sneezing lately. Um, but on more than one occasion, uh, as we walk or ride my bike through the, the Adelaide Hills, it's a bit odd when you hear the, the sound of hooves on bitumen. Uh, sometimes if you live by dairy, you might get the cows crossing the road. Um, but that wasn't the case for me. Only a few months ago, I was going for a walk and uh, turned a corner going down a hill and there's a bunch of sheep in front of me. They've got out of their paddock and they run away away from me down the hill. I knew who they belonged to or thought, had an idea, so I knocked on his door and he, oh, that's right, I went in that gate and came out the other one, didn't I? And they've managed to find their way out. Another time on my bike, years ago on my way to school, um, going down a reasonably large hill, actually, only to come around to Ben and see half a dozen cattle right in the middle of the road. I don't know who was more scared, them or me. I hit the brakes, they did the complete opposite and stampeded uh, down the road. I was just thankful there wasn't a car coming the other way. For Saul, as we've heard, the tables are turned though, aren't they? He doesn't come across a bunch of livestock on the road. He's lost a bunch of donkeys. Weren't they great donkeys? It'd be good to have them up here, I reckon, for the next few weeks. Um, Not sheep, not cows, not horse, but a bunch of donkeys that his dad, Kish, has told him to go and find. What starts out as a pretty normal day on the farm, pretty wealthy farm by the sounds of it. Kish is a wealthy man in Benjamin, we're told. What starts out to be a pretty normal day turns into a monumental day for Saul and eventually for all Israel. You might remember where we got to last week in chapter 8, the people had asked Samuel to appoint for them a king, a leader. There was some wisdom in their request. Samuel was getting old. His sons weren't following in his ways like Eli's sons. They were only in it for their own gain. And what's more, God had made provision. He'd given instruction that there would be kings in Israel and how those kings were to conduct themselves. So there was some wisdom in their request. 
but there was also some foolishness and faithlessness because they wanted a king like the other nations. They didn't want some unseen God to be their king. They didn't want to be holy and set apart. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to fit in with everyone else. But worse still, as the Lord explained to Samuel, who felt pretty bad when they said, we want a king to rule over us, God said to Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. They're actually rejecting me, God, as their king. That was their greatest error in them asking for a king. And so Samuel consented somewhat reluctantly, but the Lord told him, make sure you warn them what's going to happen when they have a king of their own choosing. And he solemnly warned them. We heard last week, this king you're going to get, he's going to take from you. He'll take and he'll take for himself. Unlike the Lord who just gives and gives and gives. This king you've asked for, he's going to take for himself your sons, your daughters, your slaves, your property, your produce. It is going to cost them dearly. And yet still they say, no, there will be a king over us. And so the Lord hands them over to their request and their foolishness. And he appoints Saul today to be their king. The end of chapter 8, Samuel sent them all home. Go, every man to his city. We'll work this out. Let me prepare. Let me seek the Lord's will. So everyone's back at home waiting for this king. While back at home in Benjamin, a few donkeys have done the Houdini. They've escaped and sent Saul, uh, and Saul is sent to find them. But this story begins not with a sounding of an alarm about lost donkeys or even a description of those donkeys so that Saul could draw a picture and put it on all the windows in the shops and say, lost donkeys, big ears, big teeth, and they smell a lot. No, this story begins with a description of Saul. And what a picture he is. Did you see him here? He was the right man for the job, wasn't he? Thanks, Zach. Saul, is a, he's come from a wealthy family. Kish is a wealthy man. But Saul himself is more handsome than anyone else in all Israel. Still the right man for the job, Zach. <laughs> and he's taller than everybody else. Literally, he is head and shoulders above the rest. From the shoulder up, he is taller than everyone else. If Israel had a basketball team, he would have been the perfect centre or the perfect ruckman for, this, for the footy team. If you lined up all the fellows in Israel together, Saul would have been the one you would choose to be king. He just looks right for the job. And Saul's appearance is described first up here for good reason, and it's something we need to remember and note in the coming weeks, the coming chapters. Saul is made to look like, for now, the obvious choice as king. But as we've already heard in this series, appearances can be deceiving, can't they? Not everything is as they seem. And when it comes to Saul, we're soon going to learn for all his good looks, all his great height and stature, sorry Zach, his heart is far from the Lord. In fact, within a couple of chapters time, and even here in this episode, we learn that Saul shows little, if any, intent, respect or regard for the Lord and his will and his word. Israel have asked for a king. In doing so, they've rejected the Lord as their king. And what they get in his place is really a king who ultimately rejects the Lord himself and his word. Not a good person to have as a ruler or judge. Not a good one to follow down the path of life into whatever driveways you might find yourself. 
Now that's jumping ahead, that lesson comes much later. Today though we learn, it's very clear that this first king that Israel have asked for is actually chosen by God. Despite the fact it's the people who want this king, it's their request. Despite the fact he ends up being unfit for the role, his tremendous height, well, he's not up to the task, and yet he is the Lord's anointed. God chooses him. He appoints Saul to be prince over his people. And it's interesting, yes, Saul does become king, but God here uses the term prince or leader over his people in verse 16 and not king. You shall anoint him to be prince, he's telling Samuel, to to be prince over my people. Perhaps God's reserving that title for himself, the superior title of king, or for Paul's successor to come, King David. But I think it's a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, reminder that the Lord himself is king. That whatever king of Israel there might be, he is only in that place under the Lord's reign. Israel's rejection of Yahweh the Lord as their king doesn't actually change the fact that he is their king. Just as any rejection of God today, any unbelief among the nations, doesn't make God disappear, does it? Like when you play hide and seek with a small child and they cover their eyes and say, you can't see me, I'm hiding. Just because they can't see you doesn't mean you're not there, does it? Our not seeing or believing in God doesn't make him disappear. Our not trusting him or submitting to him as our king does not mean he doesn't reign over our lives. And we learn both the Old Testament and the New, Romans 13 tells us, doesn't it? There is no earthly authority that isn't established and instituted by God himself. This whole episode of 1 Samuel is a divine appointment. It comes under God's reign. A divine appointment in more ways than one. What seems to come about only by chance, through some donkeys who have got out and got lost, together with a somewhat spontaneous suggestion of Saul's servant, ah, let's go see the seer, see if he'll tell us where the donkeys are, because that's what you go and see a man of God about, isn't it? Now, this is no coincidence at all. This is a divine appointment. God has ensured that Saul and Samuel meet. And then the Lord appoints Saul to be prince over Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know or understand everything about the Lord's appointing of some leaders. Raises some questions at times, doesn't it? Both in biblical history, ancient history and modern day. Some leaders would think, Lord, what are you doing? Why is that person in that position of power and authority? But if we do believe and submit to God as being sovereign, and if we're to take his word, take the Lord at his word, then it's the Lord who appoints all who are in authority. There is no authority on earth that the Lord has not established. That's not to say there's no human responsibility at work in those decisions. There is. And there's a responsibility for those in those positions as they exercise their roles as leaders. But the Lord appoints Saul to be king, even though it's the people's choice. They're the one who ask for a king. The Lord's the one who gives Saul his position, his power, his spirit and his authority. And yet we see Saul himself is responsible for how he conducts himself in that role. 
the Lord holds him accountable in that position. Now, it's quite easy for us to see all that at work. We can say quite clearly God's at work here, can't we? We can see that. We can say that because God's revealed it to us here in the Scriptures. The narrator reveals it to us here in the Word. But it's not that clear to those in the story at the time, is it? It's Saul thinking, oh, I'm going off to find my donkeys, but God's going to speak to me along the way. That's not in Saul's mind at all. And there's something missing in this whole story, especially most of chapter 9. It's not just the donkeys. It's not always easy to find something that's missing, is it? Unless you know what you're looking for. But the noticeable omission in most of chapter 9 is God. He doesn't actually show up all that much. He's not mentioned very much. When he is, it's only in passing when Saul's servant says, hey, let's go see the man of God, the seer. And even then, God's only raised with the hope of finding the donkeys. On the surface, this whole episode is a very human and horizontal situation. On the surface. And if we took out verses 15 to 17, where the Lord reveals to Samuel what's actually taking place here, you could actually take those verses out and the narrative would flow quite well. Verse 14, So they, Saul and his servant, went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on this way, up to the high place. Jump to verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? You could skip verses 15 to 17 and not miss a beat in the story except that those verses are the clue to the whole story they tell us what God is doing in this whole episode but I wonder if the fact that God is not mentioned much at all is an early warning sign it's a little hint of revelation here from the Lord himself particularly with regards to Saul you see God doesn't figure very largely in Saul's mind It's not Saul who seeks the Lord's guidance to look for the donkeys. It's his servant. Without that suggestion, Saul would have been back home to make sure his dad wasn't worried about him more than the donkeys. And we're going to learn more and more about Saul's character as the weeks go on and we go through the next few chapters. But sadly, God doesn't figure very much in Saul's thinking at all. But whether he has any interest or regard or desire for God, God himself definitely has an interest in Saul, doesn't he? This whole scenario has been carefully crafted by God to bring Saul and Samuel together for a very special reason. A reason we hear about at the end of chapter 9, when he tells his little servant, to you go off, go on ahead, I'll catch up. And at the end of chapter 9, verse 27, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, Stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Up to this point, Saul's got very little idea what's going on. Very little idea. Yes, he's been on the end of some special treatment, banquet, special place of honour, special meal, invited guests. And there's some cryptic verses earlier on in verse 20, 21. Samuel tells them the donkeys have been found. But then he says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? To which Saul replies, what do you want about Samuel? (laughs) Me? Might be a big guy, but I'm pretty little when it comes to Israel. 
Like when the smallest of tribes and the humblest of clans of that tribe, why are you speaking to me as though I'm someone special? In fact, if you go back into the book of Judges, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin is just about wiped out. They're almost non-existent. There has to actually be a special plan to actually ensure that Benjamin, the tribe, keeps on going. They really were not much when it came to Israel. But nothing's more said, just these few little hints and clues. And he's weary after the long journey. Samuel gives them a place to sleep and then in the morning gets them to get up on their way and finally says, make sure you let your servant go ahead and I need to tell you the word of God. Which then in chapter 10, if not for us, at least for Saul, would have made him fall off his horse if he was riding one, I reckon. I'm going to tell you the word of God. And he takes a flask of oil, pours it on his head and kisses him and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince? That would have blown Saul away. He wasn't expecting that. Not at all. He would have been saying, where did that come from? Hang on a minute, Samuel. What are you doing? Is this some kind of TikTok challenge like the ice bucket thing and you're pouring oil on my head? Where's the cameras? This is not what he was expecting. Why are you kissing me and pouring this oil on my head? What's this all about? I didn't sign up for this. To which Samuel says to him, no, you didn't, but God has signed you up for this. You are going to lead my people. You are going to be prince of my people. And to confirm that this is not some crazy trick or some wacko crackpot seer doing some weird things to poor, confused Saul, he's given three signs. Now, we didn't hear about all of them in the readings and stuff, but he's given three signs. First of all, they're to head out the city. They're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb. He'll tell them the donkeys have been found, and Saul's father is now anxious about them. Then at the Oak of Tabor, they're going to meet three men carrying goats, loaves of bread and wine, and they'll give to Saul and servants some of their wares. And then thirdly, as they come to Gibeath Elohim, which is the hill of God, they're going to come across some prophets singing and prophesying, as well as a garrison of Philistines. Did you miss that when we read it? Interesting. And the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you'll find yourself prophesying. You'll be turned into a new man. And we're told the Lord actually gives him a new heart. Now, we could spend a lot of time trying to work out each of those signs in and of themselves. They're quite significant. But each of them are really specific, aren't they? These are not some fortune cookie or astrology sort of, you know, you can interpret any way you want, you're going to meet a nice person today. No, it actually tells you where they're going to meet, how many you're going to meet, what they're going to be carrying, what they're going to give you, what they're going to say. And they all come to pass. There is no way Saul can question the word of the Lord that comes from Samuel at this time. Samuel is definitely a prophet of the Lord. And what's more, all the signs together, what should we do with signs? The one that says church, go in this drive, we should follow the sign, shouldn't we, and work out what it points to, not just look at the sign. What do these signs point to? They point to the fact that God has called and anointed and appointed Saul to be king of Israel. God has chosen him to be leader of the people. But for now... That's privileged information. How many people at this point know that Saul is going to be the king of Israel? Two. Saul and Samuel. 
No one but them. Even Saul's uncle, when he gets home, Saul is asked, oh, you went to see the seer, Samuel. What did Samuel say to you? He's interested. If you go see a seer, it's good to know what the prophet of the Lord says. Now, Samuel didn't lie, but he only told half the truth, didn't he? Oh, he just told us that the donkeys have been found. That's all. That wasn't all, but it's all that we're here, all that he hears. This sets up the rest of the book of Samuel, really, doesn't it? It sets up the whole kingship of Israel and what the Lord's doing. But there's some very significant points and truths here that I think is worth drawing our attention to. The first one comes in chapter 10, verse 8. If you've got a Bible there, open up to chapter 10, verse 8, if you're not already there. It's a really important part of this whole story and a crucial part for the next few weeks. Saul is to be king. He is, to be, he is anointed with a spirit. He himself prophesies, and that's made a bit of a, a thing of because the, the narrator tells us a bit more and there's this whole proverb that comes out of it. Is even Saul among the prophets? It's like this was totally unexpected. But verse 8 reminds us that even as king, even as one who's been rushed upon by the spirit and turned into a new man with a new heart, in his new role and authority, he is only ever to exercise that with the word of God, according to the word of God. Go down before me to Gilgal, Samuel tells Saul. Behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. That's going to be really important in a couple of weeks' time. But here's the new king of Israel. He cannot just do what he wants. He has to wait for the word of the Lord through Samuel to come to him. Really, really important. All authority on earth, every earthly authority has been established and instituted by God, including the first king of Israel. And all authority on earth, including Saul, should be lived according to the word of God, to the will of God, the way of God. You see, the three signs Saul has been given to look out for, to confirm this word, is not just to say, yes, you are going to be king. It also confirms Samuel, doesn't it, to be a prophet of the Lord, a genuine prophet of the Lord, that what Samuel says is what the Lord says and therefore should be regarded highly, should be listened to. And this, we're going to learn in the weeks to come, actually becomes the downfall for Saul. Samuel is the one who makes the word of God known to Saul, both here and throughout his reign as king. But Saul, very sadly, doesn't always, we could even say rarely, does he wait or want to hear the word of the Lord in his position. He's given a new heart. The spirit rushes upon him. He's given the power of the spirit. And in verse 7, did you notice, he's actually said, when these things happen, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now I wonder and some of the commentators agree with me, or I agree with them, that I actually wonder if at this point Saul could have actually taken on the Philistines. There's a garrison of Philistines there. Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. But he misses the opportunity. Maybe too caught up in the whole rushed upon the spirit and prophesying and doing all this and people are looking at him. He's missed an opportunity there. And in the end, it's actually Jonathan who takes on the Philistines, not Saul interesting thing that we'll see down the track but even someone who's been filled with a spirit in the way that Saul has here 
is only ever to act according to the word of God, in obedience to the word of God. Any gift or power or position of authority that we are given is only ever to be used in accordance with God's word. His word and his power are never to be separated. His word and his spirit are never to be separated. They're never to be at odds with one another. Such that when they are, if we ever find ourselves in a situation or an experience where God's word and the work of the spirit that we're seeing are in contradiction, then our antenna should be up and there should be alarm bells ringing in our hearts and our minds. Paul had to deal with something like that in Corinthians, didn't he? A people who've been blessed and enriched with the gifts of the Spirit, the grace of God, but they were exercising those gifts in a way that was contrary to God's word for their own gain. Last week we heard, remember, from Deuteronomy 17, as the Lord gave instructions for the king, all the kings of Israel to come, what were they to do? Well, first of all, they were not to acquire for themselves many horses for himself, not to acquire many wives for himself or excessive gold or silver for himself. The one thing the king was to do for himself when he sat on his throne was to write for himself a copy of the law, of the word of God, and to read it to learn to fear the Lord by keeping that word. He was to abide in the word of God so that he would not turn aside to the left or the right. Come tonight and hear from Proverbs, as our youth will. Very similar wisdom there. As you go out into the world, don't turn to the left or the right. Keep listening to the Lord. Follow his ways, his word, his wisdom. So many leaders and believers today seek the powerful gifts and signs of the Spirit, but are far less keen to actually read his word and just live simple, obedient lives according to that word. Israel's kings were meant to write their own copy of the law, the word of God. They were to read it all the days of their life. Whether we're in a position of authority or not, we too are called to abide in God's word, aren't we? Jesus tells us, abide in me, abide in my word, and you will bear much fruit. And if you don't, well, there's going to be some cutting and pruning that takes place. We don't need to make our own copy of it, do we? Although sometimes sitting down and actually writing it out might help us remember it, abide in it, and it in us. We've got more access to the written word of God than any other generation. Got it on our phones, we can listen to it, we can read it. How many copies have you got sitting on shelves at home? How many different versions? And yet, proportionally, the biblical literacy of this generation is probably less than it's ever been before. This is life-giving stuff. Cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Can you remember Yoshi's children's talk? How sweet God's word is. Where's Yoshi? Is his Bible still open and closed? I'm not sure. He poured honey into the pages of his Bible. He did have some glad wrap there, but he then did close it too, so I was very worried. Do we know how sweet and rich and life-giving God's Word is? And do we know where we end up if we follow a different word and listen to a different voice or ignore God's Word to us? Can I be something of a Samuel to us this morning? 
especially if you're not regularly sitting down and reading God's word. Can I urge you, as Samuel does to Saul here at the end of chapter 9, stop. Stop yourself for a while. Hit the pause button on all the other things that are going on and distracting you or dictating where you're meant to be going and what you're meant to be doing. And hear the word of God. Read it. Listen to it. Abide in it. And let it abide, dwell in you richly. It will be such a blessing to you, to your family, and to those around you. As you hear God himself speak to you, and relate to you, and commune with you in his word. As we learn his wisdom and his word and his, his way for us in life. And as we do that, we will learn as Saul had to learn the hard way, as Samuel encourages him to, not just to be in the word, but to wait on the Lord. The first thing Saul is told to do here is to wait until Samuel comes to him and tells him what to do, shows him what to do. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We live in a world where we see so much, we feel so much, and we think that's the reality, don't we? The tangible things we can get our hands on, we can control. If this story tells us anything, it tells us there's divine appointments happening all the time. God is at work weaving his purposes in our lives. Maybe next time you've lost your keys or something, God's actually trying to do something. He's bringing something about. It could be anything big or little, couldn't it? We dare not presume that we know what's best for ourselves or our families or our workplaces if we're not waiting on the Lord and being in his word with him. We dare not make decisions in life, especially the big ones, without asking the Lord, what's your will for me? And I don't just mean asking in prayer and waiting for the writing on the wall. Careful about asking for writing on the wall. You know what happened when there was writing on the wall? It was a word of judgment. It wasn't a word of guidance. No, sit in prayer and wait on the Lord and read his word and grow your picture of God and your love for God and your relationship with God and you'll actually know his will for you as you do that. He's the revealer of mysteries and he's given us plenty of good wisdom to walk by in his word. Saul was the first king of Israel. As I said at the beginning, this is the beginning of a whole line of kings and really the beginning of a whole purpose of God which points eventually to Christ, the king, isn't it? He's the one true king who actually did live according to the word of God, his father. He abided in it, he learnt it, he grew in it, he matured in it. He followed his father's will every step of the way. And in him, in Jesus Christ, God's actually promised to us to do for all of us internally what he commanded every king to do externally. God said, I will put my law within you. I'll write it on your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people. Covenant love, covenant promise, covenant communion. No longer shall we teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, from the kings to the plebs. And how is it we'll know him? 
therefore I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. That's the promise of our Lord. That's the heart of our God and the word of our true king, the one who has followed in the way and word of God. Saul is just the beginning. There's a long way to go before Jesus arrives on the scene. There's plenty more kings to come and none of them can do what only Jesus can do. Sadly, many of them don't follow the word of God. Wayne started our service off with these words. The psalmist warns and encourages us, doesn't he? Therefore, O kings and everyone else, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Honour the king, the true king. Respect him and love him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen.